for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Thank you. You can, you can be seated. Um, uh, I have a, what I believe is a prophetic word for you. You ready to, to hear it? Yeah. You, you should apply to lead a tribe. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. We are called to be the head and not the tail. Yeah. Above and not beneath. That means that we are called to be visionaries, leaders, givers, not just takers, not just followers. And I understand that for many of us, we have only ever known a, a church paradigm where the whole ecosystem of the church revolves around our personal desires and, uh, and there's no demand or expectation or responsibility put on our plate. And we are working hard to change that here at the altar where we understand that every member is a minister and that every home is an extension of the church. I want to say that again. Here at the altar fellowship, every member is a minister. And every home is an extension of the church. And this is why we put such a huge emphasis on our small group ministry, tribes. Because um, there are people who are members of this church that I will never get to sit down and have a meal with. But you could. They may never come into my home, but they could come into yours. I may never get to know their kids and what their kids are struggling with. Or their story about how they met and what their marriage has survived. But you could. And, and those conversations are so critical that we not just know about people, but that we know people. Like, it's so important for us as members of the church, not just to know the people around us, but to be known. And so we've set up this ministry because it's a critical part of who we are and what God has called us to build here at the Altar Fellowship. So my hope is that that every one of us who calls this, this church home would be clamoring over each other for the opportunity to, um, to, to host an outpost of this house and to make our home an extension of the ministry that Yahweh is building at the Altar Fellowship. And so today, as Mandy said, is your last opportunity to apply to become tribe leaders. And here's the thing. You might not be selected to lead a tribe. And so uh, what better way to um, let God decide than to apply and then secretly go home and say, no, please, Lord. <laughs> please, Lord, don't let him pick me. Like, I'm just being obedient to apply, but I'd really rather. And then, uh, you know, maybe you find out that you get picked to lead a tribe and you really didn't want to. And then it turns out that God knows best, right? Um, and so we're going to leave it in the Lord's hands. Amen. We look forward to sifting through another hundred applications today, uh, this, this evening, this afternoon and evening. Um, so it is good to see you. I hope you've had an amazing week. Um, I want to thank you for being here and for being a part of this uh, beautiful house, this, this covenant community that Yahweh is establishing. For those of you that were here over the last couple weeks, uh, I have sort of uh, followed the same format the last two weeks. I don't know if you remember two weeks ago, I taught a message called The Bible Is. Does anybody remember? We had three answers to that question. The Bible is trustworthy. Yeah, that's good. Transformational and personal. Man, I love it. Good job, y'all. How about last week? Anybody remember? We, last week, I, I taught a message called The Church Is. Anybody remember what the church is? Divine. There you go. Enduring and essential. The church is divine, enduring, and essential. Now, 
I'm so proud of you guys. Yeah, I think some of y'all might have taken notes. You guys might be cheating. <laughs> I'm looking at Pastor Zach. He's cheating for sure. Um, but we, uh, that doesn't count as, that's not cheating. I'm proud of you. Good job. Taking notes is, taking notes is a good thing. But um, uh, this week, uh, as we are launching into what is a new era for us, and, and to be quite honest, a new era for me of, uh, of really saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. If it was my preference, we would just have a building that could seat more people in a bigger parking lot. But those things aren't, those aren't easy to come by. So I wrestled with the Lord for ages, and I'm convinced that it is the word of the Lord for us to go to these two services. And so it's an exercise for me in personal denial. It's an exercise for me in, uh, in, in being crucified with Christ. It's an exercise for me in relinquishing control and saying, God, let's, let's build your church, not mine. Let's build your vision, not mine. Let's build your kingdom, not mine. And you build it in the way that you see fit. My job is just to serve him, to submit to his word and to the leadership of his spirit in my life. And so two weeks ago, we taught the Bible is. Um, last week, I taught the church is. This week, I'm, I'm gonna be teaching a message titled The Gospel Is. And the reason I think this is so critical this week is because we have this brief window of time. Listen, I've, I've been around the altar fellowship for a while now, since the very beginning, and I know that every time we open up seats, they tend to fill up quick. And so we have this, this brief window of time where, where, where all of us can say, God, use me to, to bring a wounded man into the inn. Use me, God, to be the reason that somebody finds a safe place to heal and grow. Use me, God, to be the reason that, that the, 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 the people that live next door to me, that I can hear them shouting at each other every night when, when they're fighting. Use me to be the reason that they find home and healing for their marriage. Use me to be the reason that my, my, my kid's friend from school whose family life is really messed up, use me to be the reason that that kid comes into the family of God and finds that there is a home for him, that there is a father for him in heaven who will never leave him or forsake him. Like, this is our opportunity as a, a people, as a community, to say, God, let's not just believe the gospel. Let's not just personally respond to the gospel, but let's carry the gospel into this city, into this community, and into this generation like it's what we were born for. Because guess what? It's what we were born for. Now, you should know, it's a, a part of my story is that before we planted this church, I spent years and years traveling the world and teaching people evangelism. And so, in some sense, I felt like a professional, like, gospel trainer, you know? And uh, the interesting thing for me is, is that much of my ministry at the time was just trying to teach people we need to be in community and we need, we need to be worshipers of God. And, uh, and I know that those two things can sound like they're very disconnected from the gospel, but the truth is it's, it's like, what's the point of preaching the gospel if when someone responds to it, I can't invite them into a community that's built on the foundation of the gospel. So it's like the, the, the kingdom community, the church, it's, it's the context into which the gospel uh, conceives people. It's, it's the context into which the gospel transports people. So uh, you know, similarly, if we're going to be worshipers of God, you know, we talk about 
family and, and worship. So it's important that we have kingdom family and then it's important that we are worshipers. I'm convinced that there is no better way to develop the ability to articulate the attributes of God than to articulate the attributes of God to God in worship. To put it very simply, I, I practiced telling people about God by telling God about God. It's actually in the place of worship, in the thousands and thousands of hours in my life that I spent in worship, that I found the, uh, the vocabulary to describe God. And I didn't do it by you know, grabbing strangers on the street and saying, hey, let me tell you about God. I, I did it by getting into the secret place and saying, God, I, I just want to look at you and tell you what I see. And so you know, if we're going to be a family built on these two pillars of worship and family, we have to recognize that it doesn't end at worship and family. That if we actually are going to be people who embody a divine assignment to worship and to family, we are inevitably inescapably going to become a people who carry the gospel into every place God sends us. And so let's start by defining the gospel. What even is the gospel? Because frankly, I grew up thinking gospel was a genre of music that my mom listened to. <laughs> you know? Like, and you have two different types. You have black people gospel And then you have gospel quartets. That's the white people, right? <laughs> and uh, and they're, both, they're both glorious. I think Jesus loves them both, but I don't think there's anybody in the world that would tell you that's, that's what the apostle Paul had in mind when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so, like, what is the gospel? You know, we, there's these, these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we call the gospels. So is, is the gospel, is that just the account of the life of Jesus? It's just the story about Jesus. Is that, is that what it is? Like Mark 1, 1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Like, fair enough, okay? And then Mark just tells the story about his life and ministry. Is, is that what the gospel is? Is it just information about Jesus? You know, the, the, this word for gospel, it's, it's, translated as gospel in our Bibles is a Greek word evangelion. That, that word simply means good news. And I think, you know, maybe many of you have heard that, that the word gospel just means good news, right? Okay, so does that mean that, you know, oh, the, the, the saints beat the buccaneers, that's, that's gospel, right? That's good news in, in my house. Like, you know, UT beat Alabama and everybody pretended like that was good news around here in, in Tennessee. <laughs> Bad news. It's bad news for us. But we, you, we're going to hear about that for the next 20 years, no matter what happens. But we, uh, it's, uh, I think the, is the, the goalpost is still in the river, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It's good news, right? So there's a lot of different types of good news. Is that the gospel? You know, interest rates are going down. It's like, all right, is that, that's good news, but is that the good news? So I think it's clear that we can't diminish the gospel to simply being any good news because there's all types of good news, right? So is it the good news that God exists? Is it the good news that Jesus loves you? It's like, I couldn't tell you the number of people who would say, 
You know, they preach the gospel and what they do is they just walk around telling people, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. It's like, listen, that is good news, but is that the good news? I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what really is the gospel? I love this definition from the 16th century theologian and one of the fathers of the reformed movement. His name is Zacharias Ursinus. He said this, he said, the doctrine of the church, I, I wanna make sure you really hear this because this is gonna be a framework for us. He said, the doctrine of the church consists of two parts, the law and the gospel. I, like this is, this is revelatory for, for some of us. The doctrine of the church consists of two parts, the law and the gospel, in which we have comprehended the sum and substance of the sacred scriptures. The law is called the Decalogue. And the gospel is the doctrine concerning Christ, the mediator, and the free remission of sins through faith. So he sums up all Christian doctrine as either law or gospel. That's it. Like everything that we believe as Christians, it's either law, how we ought to live, or it's, it's gospel. And the summation of the gospel, the way that, that Ursinus writes it, is he says that the, that the gospel is summarized as this, all doctrine concerning Christ the mediator and the free remission of sins through faith. I think that's a really beautiful definition. All doctrine concerning Christ the mediator, that is the one that goes between God the just and man the guilty. So there's this mediator, that is Christ the mediator between God who is just and man who deserves the wrath for the sake of justice. And, and, and so all doctrine concerning Christ the mediator and the free remission of sins. The free, everybody say free. free. It did not cost you anything to come into salvation, but it will cost you everything to walk it out. It did not cost you anything to come into salvation, but it will cost you everything to walk it out. The free remission or removal of sins through faith not through works, not through effort, not through personal piety or consecration, not through the amount of, of prayer or, or the number of laws that we keep or verses that we memorize or services we attend. Zacharias Ursinus defines the gospel as all doctrine concerning Christ the mediator and the free remission of sins through faith. 1 Corinthians 15 verses one through four gives us a couple keys to... Uh, um, to, to a definition of the gospel, a stable definition of the gospel. So I want, you, I want to make sure you, you, you hear this and you see this. Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which, you, uh, by which also you were saved. Okay, so um, if you grew up in church, getting saved, it's like a big part of the story. Y'all use that term? Like I got saved, I could tell you where I was, what, what I was doing. All, all 12 times I got saved growing up in the church. <laughs> and so there's, this, there's this, this issue of salvation that people are, are in danger and then they are saved. They're removed from that danger. They're brought into security by the gospel. So Paul, I, I wanna make sure that we are like reading through this and we're ringing it out for everything that it's worth. Moreover, in, in 15.1, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. And so the gospel saves us. 
The gospel saves us. Understand, the gospel is not just information. So we can take this idea that the gospel is just the story of the life of Jesus as a general sort of summary. We can take that off the table because it's not just information about Jesus. Like the pages of an inanimate object can have the, uh, the, the story of the life of Jesus, right? A, a, a parrot could memorize the story of the life of Jesus. Uh, an unbeliever could memorize the story of the life of Jesus. So it's not just the information about Jesus. The gospel actually saves us. If it really is, all the doctrine concerning Christ the mediator and the free remission of sins. Paul communicates to the Corinthians that it's this gospel by which also you are saved. If, everybody say if. That's the most important word in the English language. I have it tattooed on my hand. It's so important. If, like, listen, it would be, if you stopped right there, this is the gospel that I preach to you, in which you stand, by which you also are saved. It's like, if that was the end of the passage, it's like good news for everybody, great. But there's that word, that conditional word, if, that is like really important. It's really important, okay? And so he, he says, you're saved by the gospel if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. So there's this, this condition. Like we're not just saved because Jesus died. We are saved if we hold fast to the truth that Jesus died for us. This is why Ursinus defines the gospel as all doctrine concerning Christ, the mediator, and the free remission of sins through faith. It's not enough that that doctrine exists. We have to receive that doctrine. We have to believe that truth. So he says, you are saved by the gospel if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse three says this, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So he says, listen, I, I wasn't, coming up with these ideas on my own. I didn't invent this story about Jesus. He says, this was revealed to me. And so I gave it to you, that Christ died for our sins. Whose sins? Not, listen, one of the mistakes that I see people make very frequently in the modern church is that um, it's easy to believe that Jesus died for gang members and drug dealers. But we forget that Jesus died for gossipers, for sluggards, for religious uh, busybodies. He died for people like me. It's easy to look in the gutters and say, oh, yeah, those people need Jesus. But the truth is they're no more lost than you are if you don't have Christ. And so Paul says, I delivered to you, first of all, that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is, I think, really important because um, Christ didn't just die for our sins because eh, someone had to do it. Christ died for our sins because that was the plan from the very beginning. And there was 1,500 years of Jewish history, prophecy, doctrine, that uh, all of which points forward to the need for a mediator to pay the price for our sin by enduring the wrath of God himself, by drinking the cup of, of the wrath of God. And so what we, what we get by this, uh, this descriptive phrase that Paul uses, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, is Paul is saying this, wasn't, this isn't a new idea. 
all of the scriptures for millennia have been preparing us for this moment that Christ would come and die for the sin of the world. And so he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, in verse four, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There's that phrase again. And so Paul is saying Christ doesn't exist in a vacuum. All of history prior to him was pointing forward to him. And all of history after him is pointing back to him. He is the center point of human existence. He is the center point of all creation, the preeminent one, the exalted one. He's the point and purpose of all creation. It is in him that all things exist and were created. Everything that was made was made by him and for him. And so this is how Paul summarizes the gospel which he preached according to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. He says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I think it's a beautiful parallel of Ursinus' summary that, that the gospel is all doctrine concerning Christ the mediator and the free remission of sins. Understand, the gospel is not the gospel just because Jesus existed. The gospel is not the gospel just because Jesus died. The gospel is not the gospel just because Jesus was buried. The gospel is the gospel because Jesus rose again. And he did all of this for our sins. The gospel is the gospel because Jesus rose again on the third day according to scriptures. And he did all of this for our sins. And so today I want to try to answer the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is three things, powerful, political, and personal. I got peas on all three of them. I feel like a real pastor today. We got (laughs) multiple services. I got three points. They all start with the same letter. I'm crushing it today. This is all, you're going to see me on preachers with with sneakers pretty soon. Y'all heard of that? This is going to be good. Somebody need to get me some, some (laughs) J's. My kids will respect me then. What are those you got, Kai? Hmm. Got to get some Travis Scott's like my man Kai over there. Listen, I may not have cool sneakers, but my kids do. And I feel like that's a bigger flex. You know what I'm saying? Um, Thank you, Lord. (laughs) So the gospel is powerful, political, and personal. Um, This is, I was just talking with David, uh, Pastor David Morrison um, the other day. And he said, man, I love the gospel He said, because it's really true, no matter where you are in the world, the gospel is powerful. He said, I've seen people all over the planet, they they respond to the gospel. All you have to do is tell them the gospel, that that Jesus, uh, how does Paul summarize it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. It's like, if, if that's the gospel, we just tell the gospel to the world. And what happens is something inside of them begins to respond. Something in, in, in the deepest parts of their being begins to stir and awaken and react to the proclamation that they were seen by God from in eternity past, that he made a way for them to come into real relationship with him, to become his sons and his daughters, to know God personally, intimately, and eternally. It's like, 
There's nothing better. There's no more glorious message. And no matter what language you speak or what religion your parents were or what country you were raised in, that message has the ability to transform a human heart forever. The gospel is powerful. This is why I'll start here, Romans 1.16. This is why Paul declares to his friends in Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Listen to this. He does not say the gospel is the means by which we access the power of God. He doesn't say that the gospel is the story about the power of God. He says the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Like it is the mechanism by which people are saved. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And I love this. You know, Pastor Ian and I, we were talking recently about some debates, some theological debates happening within the church about the, uh, the role of the nation of Israel and God's plan and the, the, how, the, the, how, how God's promises to Israel and God's promises to the church can sort of coexist and if they can. And the truth is, and I think kind of the, the conclusion that we came to was that God has always had a people and that people has not been defined by an ethnicity. It's been defined by an internal yes to him. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Like, Here's, here's what I mean. You, you have entering into the promised land, you have two primary leaders. You have Joshua and you have Caleb, who was a Gentile. He had no ethnic claim to the promised land, but he believed God, didn't he? And so he's right there, like coming into the inheritance that God had promised to Abraham and then to Moses. It's like, it's this, this beautiful thing that God continually, continually affirms that what he's looking for is a heart given to him. No matter what country you're from or language you speak, no matter what gods your parents worship, he's looking for a heart committed to him. That's what God has always been looking for. And this is why Romans 1.16 is so beautiful because what Paul is saying is, is to this multi-ethnic Roman church, he's saying, listen, this is not about Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other side, both trying to figure out how to follow Jesus their own way. He's saying, no, God has always only had one people. And it is a people who will give him their unconditional yes. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for the gospel itself is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile alike. And then let's go to Romans chapter 10. In the same letter, he writes this. In the same letter, let's go to Romans 10 verses 13 through 15. Oh, we're going to find it. Thank you, Lord. Um, Romans 10, it, it, uh, starting in verse 13, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In, in fact, let me go to the verse before that, Romans 10, 12, just to further elaborate on the point that I was just making. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And so this verse 10, 13, here's the assertion. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The, the argument Paul is making is this. It does not matter how you were raised, what language your family spoke, what nation you were from. Maybe you were born and raised in the church and you're a pastor's kid or maybe your parents are drug addicts and you set foot in church last week for the first time ever in your life. 
here's the one distinguishing factor about whether you are God's or not. If you'll call on his name, he's got room for you. If you'll call on his name, he's got room for you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The next verse says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's a good question. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Guys, I want you to understand, it is only by calling on the name of the Lord that we can be saved. And it is only by believing that we can call on his name. And it is only by hearing the gospel that we can ever hope to believe. So we, as people who have received the gospel, I cannot think of anything more insulting to the sacrifice of Jesus or to the sanctity of the people he's put in your life to keep secret the only means by which they will ever find salvation. It is not love. It is the quintessence of hatred to keep the gospel pent up inside of you if you claim to actually believe it. If you actually believe that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that you can come to salvation from the wrath of God, to walk by people who don't know that truth every day and to in indifference withhold that truth from them. I can think of no greater insult as one of two things. Either you don't really believe the gospel yourself, which is a scary proposition, or you just genuinely, in the deepest parts of you, do not care at all about the people that God puts in your path every day. Neither one of those are very flattering, I don't think. So my hope is that today, we can be people who don't just hear a sermon about how the gospel is powerful. Hopefully today we can become people who actually believe the gospel is powerful. Because the gospel really is powerful. It really is. But the gospel is not only powerful, the gospel is also political. Are you excited right now? This is going to be great. I got a long list of stuff to talk about. No, I'm just kidding. The gospel is political. There's a, a great quote um, on this from uh, Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he, he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. I, I want to help put this in context for you. Some, I'm going to move a little bit fast here because I think many of you have heard me talk about some of these principles. But Jesus didn't come to establish uh, a temple or a tabernacle. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, an empire. So all of his language was political language. Um, but it, it started long before Jesus showed up in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream of a statue, and, and Daniel interprets this dream for him, and, uh, and he explains that there are five coming kingdoms. Babel, there's Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome, these great empires of the world. And, and in this vision of, of this statue, what Nebuchadnezzar sees is that there's a stone that's uncut from human hands, a divine stone. A little stone, an insignificant thing that rolls into the foot of this statue, the statue representing the greatest kingdoms of the world. 
for the next uh, six, seven, eight hundred years, the greatest empires on the planet. And then he sees this stone rolling into the foot of the statue and toppling the statue, seeing the statue crumble into millions of pieces. And then he sees this little stone begin to grow and grow. It consumes all the other statues, all the other political empires, and it becomes itself a great mountain that consumes the whole world. That's the dream of the kingdom. It's in Daniel chapter two, generations and generations and generations before Jesus would even be born. There's this dream, not of a religious institution or organization, but of an empire, like a political empire. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and in Luke 16, he calls his disciples and then, uh, sorry, in, in Luke chapter six, verse 13, he calls his 12 disciples and then he designates them as apostles. Now, apostle was not a religious word. It wasn't something that guys put on their, it didn't used to be something guys would put on their, uh, you know, ministry card, Apostle Maddie Montgomery. It's like, oh no, it's not, it's not at all a church word. It's not at all a religious term. It's a, it's a political term. Uh, it's, I think the closest thing we have uh, to an apostle, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, was, is, is an ambassador. It's a representative of, of another empire. And so all through his earthly ministry, his disciples are looking at him saying, all right, when are we gonna kick Rome out? When are we going to establish political domination? And so there's this sense among everybody close to Jesus that what he came to do was to establish a political empire. And that's because all of Jesus' language was about a political empire he came to establish. You can understand their confusion. In Matthew 16, he gathers his disciples together. I read this last week, I think. He gathers his disciples together. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. Again, not a religious word. It's a political word. It's something like an embassy, an outpost of, of my kingdom. I'm going to build an ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In John 18, Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. In Revelation 11:15, as John is writing about the culmination of all things, he says this, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying this, this is the dream the book of Revelation is built on. Then the kingdoms of this, uh, the kingdoms, sorry, then the seventh angel sounded and there, was a, there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world United States, Great Britain, every great kingdom on the earth, China, Russia, everybody that we're scared of, intimidated by, influenced by, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Understand, the gospel isn't just about God's love for people. It is about God's commitment to the establishment of an eternal kingdom that will consume every other kingdom in the world. The gospel is not just powerful. It's political. It really is. And I, th I think, you know, in 2024, as an election year especially, we are going to have to be especially discerning and especially firmly rooted on this reality. No matter who the president is, Jesus is king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
that no matter what they tell you about this candidate or that candidate, Jesus is king. He is on the throne. He reigns today and he will reign forever. And so our hope is in him, in his sufficiency. Our hope is in the promise that God's word clearly highlights, and that is that the kingdom of God will continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. And no matter what kind of persecution the church may suffer, the kingdom will continue to grow. And as the kingdom continues to grow, the the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Do you believe that? This should be the framework for all of our interpretation of current events. Like, write this in your notes. Revelation eleven fifteen. Let that be the framework. Like, that is the end goal. That's the vision that all of us are moving toward. We see it in Daniel 2. We see it in, in Revelation 11. Like, all throughout, this, there's this thread of, of the kingdom narrative, the political nature of the kingdom that is woven all throughout the scriptures. And, and for us to think that our job as Christians is just to hide out in the church until Jesus comes and pulls us out of here is for us to demonstrate a fundamental misunderstanding of the prevailing message of the scriptures. Our hope is not in, a, in the rapture. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is political. And lastly, the gospel is personal. I need to make sure you hear this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the world. It's not just the world that needs the gospel. It's you. It's not just the gang member or the drug dealer that needs to hear the gospel. It's you. It's you. I, like I know you've been in church. Some of you have been in church for longer than I've been alive. You need the gospel. There is nobody in the world who has heard me preach the gospel more than I have. And I still preach the gospel to myself all the time. We don't graduate from the gospel. It's not like, you know, I, yeah, I answered the altar call when I was 10 at VBS and I'm good now. It's like, oh, no, no. I need to perpetually come back again to Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected for my sin and for my justification so that I don't ever begin to believe that I'm where I am today because of my own efforts or ambitions, but that I know that, that I have uh, been, been carried here by the grace of God that I've only accessed through faith in Jesus. I want to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, starting in verse 8. This is, uh, to give you some context here, this is Paul uh, writing to Timothy, who uh, is the senior leader of the church in, in Ephesus, who Pastor Ian shared recently that uh, scholars believe uh, could have had more than 200,000 members. So Timothy, a boy of like 16 or 17 years old, is, uh, is doing phenomenal, like world-changing things. There's an amazing revival that's come to Ephesus. And, and this is Paul writing to Timothy advice for leadership. So if, if you want to know how to be a great leader, you want to know how to be a great pastor, you read First and Second Timothy. And uh, and so, and Titus, actually, for that matter. But um, 
but in verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this to, Tim, to Timothy. He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So hear this. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians According to the scriptures, right? Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul again is saying, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised uh, from, from the dead according to my gospel. So of the seed of David, that's a, uh, a reference to a, a prophecy in, in what is it? Second Samuel chapter seven. Yeah, I think that's right. Where... Uh, where Yahweh promises David that because of his heart that is, is for the Lord, that he's going to send a king of the line of, of David who will be of the seed of David that will uh, reign on the, the throne of David forever and ever. So there's this prophecy from the days of David that we've been waiting to see fulfilled. So Paul's telling Timothy, Jesus, he's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, that prophecy. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And so... Um, everybody, I want you to say, what's the first word in this verse? I need you to, to acknowledge that Paul doesn't tell Timothy, um, uh, teach. He doesn't tell him, write it down. He doesn't tell him to believe it. He says, you have to remember. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. For which, Paul goes on to give some context here. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Let's go. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, verse 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Verse 14. This is a father's exhortation to a young pastor. Remind them of these things. Understand, I, you know, as I read this, uh, just last week, I studied through First uh, and, and Second Timothy, and I, um, as I was doing so, I, um, I felt like, I felt like, man, these letters could have been written to me. <laughs> that it's like I'm trying to manage the, the development of a kingdom culture. I'm trying to honor the Lord and remain firmly planted on, on the scriptures, but I. I know that there may be some people who look down on me because I'm young. And so what I need to do is set an example for all believers. Speech, conduct, faith, love, and purity. I, I know that there may be uh, people that, that need to be rebuked or corrected. Thank God scripture is really helpful for that. All scripture is God-breathed. We just learned a couple weeks ago. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I know that it can be difficult for me to be able to rightly approach the good works the Lord has called me to. Thank God I have scripture to raise me up in maturity and to, to strengthen and support me as I, as I try to do the good works to which I've been called. But I also recognize that there is this gospel Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. He died for my sin. 
for yours. That he was buried and then he was resurrected on the third day according to the scripture. And Paul writes to to Timothy, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And listen to this, this is good news. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And then Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. And so, um, I came here this morning to remind you of these things. I came here this morning to remind you that you may have been first born again 50 years ago. And, And if so, praise God for that. But friend, you need to be reminded today that Jesus, he didn't just die for the sin of your neighbor or your wayward child. He died for you, for the remission, the removal of your sin, that you could be justified by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that in the times when you've been faithless, he's been faithful to you. But if you deny him, He also will deny you. So I I came to tell you that because of the blood of Jesus, we've been given access to God. We've been invited to come into his presence to not just know about him, but to know him personally. We need to be reminded because Mark 16, Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 15, it says this, and this is, we're getting closer to finishing. I could do this all day. I might just preach until five. (laughs) Paul, uh, sorry, Mark. I want to go to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 15. It says this. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The gospel is the difference between salvation and condemnation. The gospel is the difference between freedom and captivity. The gospel is the difference between life and death. And for us to believe that the gospel is merely information, is an insult to the power of Paul, to the thing that Paul said was the power of God for salvation to all who would believe it. And so, what should we do? The gospel is powerful, it's political, and it's personal. What do we do with that information? Uh, we should do, I think, what Paul told Timothy remember. Remember how far away you once were. Remember the, the, the depth of, of the depravity that you once lived in. Remember the severity of your rebellion against God. 
and remember the grandeur of his mercy for you that relentlessly sought you and that with his own blood made a way for you to be innocent before him. And, uh, you know, as we come across this threshold into a, a, a new era at the Altar Fellowship today, as we're adding services and, and with all the cultural shifts and the excitement and the, uh, the potential that, that that presents, you know, as I was praying in, into this message, like, what's the best way, I think, to, to s- put a, a stamp on this day and say, God, We are here for your glory and your glory alone. We want to see your gospel just explode in us and through us into a world that desperately needs it. I remembered that Jesus gave us a a method of remembrance and he called us to remember through taking communion together. And so uh, I want to, as a family, as we're coming into a new era at the altar, I can't think of a better way to do it than for us to um, receive and remember the body and the blood of Jesus our Lord that was shed for our sake. For us to not ever graduate from the gospel and for us as a family to come again to the acknowledgement that Jesus is our hope, Jesus is our salvation, and it is only by his blood that we've been saved. And so um, if I could get the guys to come and and help me, Um, we are going to, uh, we're going to take communion together this morning. Is that all right? Come on. I need to tell you this first. If you are in the room this morning, you find yourself here and you hear me talking about the gospel and you think, you know what? I came to church today because I think church is fun. I like the music. Some of my friends go here. But you know what? I, I don't know that Jesus has become the Lord of my life. If you, um, if you showed up here this morning and, and, uh, and you think, you know what? I have been denying Jesus. And, and 2 Timothy tells me that if I deny him, that he will deny me. I've denied him in my sexuality. I've denied him in my finances. I've denied him in my marriage. I I go to my workplace and with the way that I talk and the way that I act and the way that I live, I've been denying Jesus lordship or or leadership or authority in my life. And I'm done with that. If, If you found yourself in this place and you realize, man, that you've been faithless, he's been faithful to you, but you've been faithless. I want to tell you, you don't, you don't have to just go through the motions. You don't have to, uh, just uh, fake it until you make it. I know we live in the church and that's sometimes the advice that, that we get. But you can uh, today, this morning, come into right standing with God simply, simply, simply by trusting Jesus. By trust, by saying Jesus, I, I don't have any hope if your blood can't wash me. If, if I can't be forgiven by your blood, then I'm never gonna earn forgiveness on my own. And so, Jesus, you're my only hope, but I believe that you're the only hope I need. And so if you're here this morning and 
you can't say with confidence that you have put faith in Jesus as your Lord. If you can't say with confidence that you have received this gospel, that Jesus died for your sin according to the scripture, that he was buried and then resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. If you can't say, you know what, I I have believed that gospel. I have received that gospel and I've made Jesus the Lord of my life. If, If you can't say that you've trusted Jesus as the forgiveness for your sins and his blood as the payment for your sin, I want you to know that you can make that choice today. I'm not gonna make you stand up or run down to the front of the room, but I will tell you this. If you're making that decision to trust Jesus this morning, please don't leave this room without coming to tell me. I wanna hug you and tell you how happy I am for you because there is no greater moment. There's no greater decision you could ever make. And uh, if you are making that decision today, I wanna invite you to come and take communion with us. We would love to share it with you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I would tell you, um, I, don't, I don't think communion is for you um, today. But I would encourage you to um, prayerfully consider your relationship with God, what it means to you, what it looks like moving forward, because there is no more critical or crucial question you'll ever answer. Then is Jesus really the Lord of my life? So um, what we're gonna do is we're just gonna have you, we'll start in the front, and then uh, once the, the front rows come and, and grab uh, the little cups for communion, then, uh, and then they get their seats, then we'll have the, the next row come, and so on and so forth. But you can come on up now and um, come and grab these, and then just return back to your seat, and we'll take them together once we've all had a chance to, to get one. If you'll uh, prepare the, uh, the, we'll take the, the, the bread first. Paul writes in First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the, the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll never graduate from the gospel, from the simple gospel. Jesus didn't just love you. He died for the removal of your sin and your guilt and your shame. He was buried in the ground and then on the third day he was resurrected how he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He lives today to make intercession for you as the great mediator, the high priest and shed his own blood for our forgiveness. And this is why in the same manner, he took the cup after supper saying to his disciples, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, our Savior, our King, our great Redeemer, atoning sacrifice, Prince of Peace. There is no one and nothing like you. We thank you, Lord, that it's only because of you that we have a gospel to preach. And we say, God, fill us with conviction and revelation that we would carry this gospel with boldness to a world that desperately needs it. God, use us to awaken the hearts of of this city, this region, to your glory and your love. And we thank you that you didn't leave us dead in our trespasses and sin, but that by your own blood, you made a way for us to come into freedom, wholeness, and peace. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to receive your body and your blood broken and poured out for our sake. I pray, God, that you would, by your spirit, that you'd give us grace to remember, to remember just how lost we were when you found us. Just how rich and radical your love for us has been. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us. That we can stand in that knowledge now and forever. In Jesus' glorious name. Amen. What a good God we serve. Amen. He's so kind to us. Uh, Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being a part of what God is doing at at the Altar Fellowship. Uh, If you want to stay and and, uh, worship, if you need prayer for anything, you need a miracle in your body, in your family, you want to come and share that today you put your trust and your faith in Jesus. I'd love to hear it. I and a few of my staff We'll be down here if you need any prayer for anything. Otherwise, we love you. God bless you. Thank you so, so much for being here. We'll see you Wednesday night at 630. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.